Please be seated, church. As you're seated, I was unaware that we were going to start using props during our announcements, but it seemed very effective. So, thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it. So this week I did a little bit of research online under the topic of the fear of death. And as many of you that turn to the internet and try to do research, you know you spend just as much time trying to find a valid source, a credible source, than trying to find the actual research. But once coming upon a valid source and looking at some research on the fear of death, I found an interesting quote. This was in one research study. It said, quote, some studies have found that at least among Westerners, those who fear death most are moderately religious. Both non-believers and very religious people feared death less, end quote. So that got me thinking. Why would those who are moderately religious fear death more and those who are very religious would fear death less? And so as I attempted to answer that question in my own head, I considered the Christian faith alone. And then considering the moderately religious, I equated them to nominal Christians, perhaps those who claim to be believers. They profess to know the gospel. Maybe they occasionally attend church, and perhaps they try to be morally better than the average person. These people understand that after death comes judgment. And perhaps that's the reason why they have an increased alarm of death, why they would fear death more. But what about those who are very religious or classified as very religious? They were known as those that were less anxious about death. They had more of a certainty about what would happen upon death. Questions that people ask themselves. Will I be received into heaven or will I be cast out into hell? Those referring to themselves as very religious. Perhaps those that not only profess but also see fruit, see evidence of salvation in their lives. Which causes them to fear less or maybe not at all. So as we get into our study back in 1 John this morning, I'd ask the question, what about you? Do you fear death? Do you understand that everybody is going to stand before a holy God and be judged? That we're all going to give an account for our lives? Does that thought terrify you? Or are you indifferent to it? Or do you have confidence for the day of judgment? My desire this morning is that through the preaching of God's word and through the power of the active work of his spirit within us, that we would have confidence for the day of judgment. Today we're returning back to our study in 1 John chapter 4. If you'd open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, we'll read again the entire passage that Paul writes here about love. It begins in verse 7. If you would open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, rise to your feet for the public honoring of God, public reading of God's word. 1 John, I'll be reading from verse 7 of chapter 4 all the way through verse 21. We read, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, has, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Let's pray together before you're seated. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, your word of truth. We thank you that you sanctify us by your word of truth. Father, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would teach us and empower your truth to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, church. So as we return again this morning to the study in this letter that John pens, let us be reminded that he is writing this letter to believers to give them assurance of their salvation. And he argues throughout this passage that we've looked at that love is the fruit. It is the evidence of genuine salvation. He makes it clear that anyone who loves God loves God's people. Or said a bit differently, God's people love God by loving God's people. John begins this passage, if we start reading from verse 7, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And he ends this argument in a very similar fashion in verse 21. He says, And this is the commandment that we have from him, being Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can guess where we're headed again this morning. There is no secret in this passage. Love matters. God's love matters. We've spent the last two weeks studying from verse 7 all the way through 16. This morning we will hone in on verses 17 through 21. For those of you that are note takers, we'll look at three different things this morning as we look at this passage. We will see judgment coming. First thing we'll look at this morning, verse 17. 
We'll also see judgment avoided as we look at verses 17 through 19. And the last thing we'll look at this morning is judgment determined as we look at verses 20 and 21. So here's the part where you just need to strap yourself in and hang on for a bit. Because the first thing we're looking at is judgment coming. A topic that, quite frankly, many of us don't like to talk about. And especially those of us who don't know Christ. We don't even want to think about it. And so in verse 17, John writes, matter-of-factly, he says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. He speaks of this day of judgment. He speaks in a manner that would inform us that his original hearers knew exactly what he was talking about because he doesn't go and elaborate anywhere else on it. But for us, however, if we do not understand what he is referring to as this day of judgment, we miss the entire point of this passage. We must understand what he is speaking of. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says this, he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. Every secret sin. He sees our rebellion against him who, he being a holy God, we will give an account for those things. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, the writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This day of judgment does not sound like something that we want to go into and have the wrath of God poured out upon us. It is a real day that God will judge all sin. Right of Hebrews again in Chapter 12, verse 29 says that our God is a consuming fire. He is perfectly holy and perfectly just, which means he is a perfect judge. And as a perfect judge, he must punish all sin. If he looked over, excuse me, if he overlooked sin, he would not be a just judge. And so speaking of this, Paul had opportunity to speak to the men of Athens. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, we read this. Paul speaks and says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is Paul talking about? Who is this man? It's Jesus, who is coming again to judge. The day of judgment, Paul would refer to in Romans chapter 2.16 as the day that God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus spoke very vividly about judgment. He didn't shy away from the reality of judgment. And why should he? The Father sent him to save sinners from this very judgment. The word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. 
11 of those 12 times are used by our Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke of hell. He describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. One place we see that is in Matthew 8, 12. Think about that, weeping. Weeping that is continual for all those who are sentenced for violating the laws of an infinitely holy and excellent God. Gnashing of teeth, a physical response, a continual physical response as they consciously endure the perfect divine wrath of God. Those in hell will feel pain. They will be cognizant. They will be alive. And this judgment never comes to an end. For those of you that are younger here and those of you that remember being younger, this is not like getting three spankings and then going back out to play. This is an eternal judgment poured out continually upon those in hell. And this is why Jesus refers to hell as an eternal fire. Matthew 18, 8. He describes it as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 48. What does that mean? The worm does not die. It means in hell, there will be a process of destruction and total ruin, but never those there will be annihilated. They will continue to endure the pain. It's not just for a certain amount of time. And so for us, we must make no mistake about it. Jesus taught that hell is a real place. It is no wonder that today that is under attack, right? People say, ah, hell isn't real. Come up with all arguments of why hell isn't real. Let's look to the words of our Lord. He said, hell is real. So real that he came to rescue people from it to give his own life in the place of others. Jesus taught that it was a place of divine punishment where God dispenses universal justice. And the punishment he dispenses is his own wrath that he pours upon all those who have violated his laws. You say, wow, that doesn't sound like God is a good God. Oh, he is a great God. And he is a perfect God. And he punishes evil. Otherwise, he would not be a good God. He punishes all evil. Those in hell will be rightly sentenced there. And Jesus will be the judge over them. Remember, fully conscious. Feeling the agony of God's wrath. The punishment being eternal. Those in hell being banished and separated from God's kingdom blessings, they will only know his eternal wrath. That is what Jesus taught about hell. How is it, church, that people will claim, I'm going to party in hell? It is not a place for a party. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place that you absolutely will never want to go. There's no party. The day of judgment is coming. 
a day that God will pour out his wrath. And we have all sinned, and we have all, the Bible says, have stored up the wrath of God. So it's no wonder the writer of Hebrews cautiously exclaims in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. Without a Savior, we have no way of escaping the wrath of God. The wrath that we rightly deserve for our rebellion, for our treason against the king. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, has sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life in our place, to fulfill the law on our behalf, and to die as a substitute to propitiate God's wrath on our behalf. He came to satisfy the wrath of God. This means at the cross there was a glorious exchange. Our sins imputed to Christ. His righteousness imputed to us. He has paid our debt. And in exchange, he has given us his full righteousness. But this most glorious news is not applied to all universally. God sent his son to save his people. His people. And that's why God commands that we repent and believe that all who are his people are given grace to repent and to trust the gospel, to put their hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that they would be regenerated, receive a new heart, and receive the Spirit of God within them. And before we even go any further, when we speak about hell, this is a reality. And the only way out is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You cannot stand before God and try to reason your way out. That somehow your good has outweighed your bad. You have sinned against a holy God. But he has sent his son to die in your place. And so if you have not repented and turned to Christ, I urge you now, do so. Don't play the religious game. Don't come in and out of church, but turn to Christ in repentance and faith. But don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no man. Come to Christ. This leads us to our second point this morning. Judgment avoided. Looking back at your Bibles with me, looking at verse 17 again of 1 John chapter 4, judgment avoided, we see. John writes, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. John speaks about love being perfected in us. This word here, perfected, it carries the idea of completion or, or bringing to maturity. It points back to what John had just previously penned in verse 16. If you look back at verse 16, the, the second half of it, John wrote, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, 
and God abides in him. What does that mean? It means when we abide in God, God is abiding in us, and it means we abide in his love. Love is what is evidence that we are abiding in God. And when love is evidence, it means that that love has been perfected in us. The evidence of love. And it's that evidence of God's love in us that flows out to his people that gives us confidence for the day of judgment. John writes about this word confidence. He likes this word confidence. Between his gospel and his letters, he uses this word 13 times. Talk about having boldness. In this case, boldness on the day of judgment. That everything is going to be okay. Because you are in Christ and in his righteousness. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John has already used this word confidence. If you want to flip back a page in your Bible, 1 John 2, 28. He writes, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What does he mean? He means God's children are not terrified that judgment day is coming. Instead, they have boldness not to shrink back, but instead to stand courageously knowing that they abide in God and God abides in them. John continues to unfold this argument. At the end of verse 17, he says that the believer's confidence is based on the fact that as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? It means because we are in Christ, abiding in him, and he abiding in us, we stand in relation to God in the world at the same way that Christ does. Read it again. And he... As, excuse me, as he is, so also are we in the world. I like what John MacArthur writes about this. John MacArthur says this, quote, he says, This stunning statement means the Father treats the saints the same way he does his Son, Jesus Christ. God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ and grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does, end quote. Do you think Jesus fears when standing before the Father? Perfect union with the Father. And that same perfect union he has given his people. That we are in him and he is in us. And so we can stand boldly. Think about that, beloved. Standing before the throne and standing boldly because you stand just like Christ stands before the Father. Because we are in Christ, we also display what is in Christ, the love of Christ. One theologian put it this way, he said, quote, since God's love is no longer visible in the presence of the incarnate Christ here on earth, God is manifesting his love as it is now displayed in his people, end quote. Christ no longer walking the earth, but guess who is still walking the earth? We are. And because we are, for those of us who are in Christ, we now have the love of God poured into our hearts. And that is what is on display. And it is when we see this love flowing from us, 
that we have confidence for the day of judgment. John continues expanding on this in verses 18 and 19. He writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So we find something here in verse 18, an often quoted wording that John gives here. And we hear people use it a lot when they say there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Unfortunately, it's often used out of context, which means it's misapplied. Many of you may have seen this maybe on a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a bumper sticker or something else used in a different context. So when John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, he is not speaking of every type of fear. He is not saying that abiding in love, that you're going to conquer all earthly fears. For example, he's not talking about one's fear of public speaking or one's fear of snakes. Yes, I will admit, the fear of clowns. <laughs> Laugh all you want, they're scary. I don't know who invented them, but no. He is not speaking about those fears being cast out by perfect love. So anyone who thinks that the earthly fears, like the ones just mentioned, are caused by a lack of love, they're grossly misunderstanding what John's point is here. That is not what he's speaking about. He is talking specifically about the fear of the judgment of God. Period. That is his entire point in this passage. We see it in the second half when he says, for fear, in verse 18, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Notice the context. Punishment, he speaks of. You know, when, when God's love is evidenced in us by our love for others, we are assured that we are his and we no longer fear the day of judgment because we see him working in our lives. The flip side of that, though, is there's fear for some. And that fear is of punishment. I want you to think of how fear works. Imagine driving down, not you people who are too young to drive, not you guys, everybody else. Driving down the freeway. You're cruising along, and you look in your rearview mirror, and you notice a police officer right behind you. What do you naturally do at that point? You look down at your speedometer. And if at that point you notice that you are exceeding the speed limit, guess what overcomes you? Fear. Why? Because of the impending punishment the punishment you rightly deserve because you broke the law. That is, those who have no guarantee of salvation have the same fear when they think of a holy God. That they will stand and give an account for all that they have done. It strikes great fear in their lives. Fear of the coming day of judgment the expectation of punishment for sins 
and this expectation of punishment, the punishment that is rightly deserved. But what about the proof of love in one's life? The evidence of love, of not an earthly love, but a godlike love, a love that loves the unlovable. What about that evidence? What does that do? John argues that is proof that you are abiding in God and he is abiding in you. And because of that, you have no fear of the expectation of God's judgment. But if you're here this morning and you go, well, you just spoke of fear and that fear of judgment is real. And you say, you know what? I look at my life and I still only like those people or even maybe quote, I love those people who are nice to me, but not anybody else. Well, now you have no evidence of the assurance of salvation. And so the response is the same as before. It is repent. It is repent. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Obey his command to love. You cannot do this apart from Christ. You can't try in your own strength to say, oh, I'm just going to love everybody with God's love because if you don't have his love, you can't love with his love. You must have Christ. And when you repent and turn to him, you receive forgiveness of sins and you become a child of God and then that fear of judgment is cast out. Like the way that pastor and author Kevin DeYoung put this. He said, quote, To find acquittal from God on the last day, there must be evidence flowing out of us that grace has flown into us, end quote. It's not that we're doing this in our own strength. It's not that it's even our love. It's the evidence of God's love that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we read in Romans 5.5, 5, that we see that evidence in our life. John Bunyan would put it this way. He would say, quote, At the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits, it will not be said then, did you believe? But were you doers or talkers only? End quote. Remember, we began with who are moderately, quote unquote, according to the research, religious. Those who fear death. Why? Because John argues in this passage that love must be evident. The reason for our confidence on Judgment Day is our conformity into the image of Christ. And as Christ has shown us his love, so we show our love to one another in the world in which we live now. This is not a command for later. It is a command for now. It is a present command. That we're to love the brethren. That we're to love one another. But we have to remember the order who is the initiator? It's God. He is the initiator. We see that in verse 19. John writes it very clearly. He says, we love because he first loved us. This is the second time he says this. He repeats it again. He already mentioned this in verse 10. What he's saying is, listen, this is not of your own doing. This is of God. And God always comes first in loving us. And we respond by loving him, by loving his people. His love is primary. Our love 
love through the Spirit is a copy of His love. He originates love, and we follow His example. How does this happen? It's because of God's abiding love that is in us. And John's whole point in this passage, it is that abiding love that brings us peace, that brings us confidence for the day of judgment, which would lead us right to our last point this morning. This last point is where the rubber meets the road. So if you have not wrestled with anything said so far, get ready. Judgment determined, point number three. Verses 20 and 21, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John is very clear here. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't have to go to seminary to figure out what he's saying. You don't have to figure out anything of the underlying words and what they mean here. He is very clear that if you profess to love God, but have hatred towards any of God's people, then you are a liar. You say, whoa, 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 that's heavy language. He's saying what you profess is not true. He's saying that there's no genuineness to it. He's saying... If you profess and you do not love, the reality is you, you don't know God. And he said this throughout this entire passage. He, he makes an argument here of a lesser to greater argument. He argues here for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what does that mean? Look, if you do not love the children of God, whom you can't see. It's impossible then to love God whom you cannot see. John Starr argues and says it this way. He says, quote, It is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail in the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder, end quote. So said another way. Visible love for visible brothers and sisters is proof of the invisible love that you have for the invisible God. How is that for a tongue twister? Visible love for visible brothers and sisters is proof of the invisible love that you have for the invisible God. It validates what we claim. Is there the love of God being manifest in our lives. James Montgomery Boyce adds and says this, quote, unless we are all, excuse me, let me say that again, unless we are really loving our Christian brothers and sisters on the horizontal level, we are deluding ourselves in regard to what we consider to be our love for God on the, unless we can love men and women, we cannot love God. Unless we actually do love them, we do not love the one who created them and in whose image they were and are created, end quote. I told you this was going to be the hardest part. This is the reality of the faith, the genuineness of the faith within us, that God's grace exists in us, that his love abides in us, that it is evidenced 
by it flowing out of us. It's been rightly said, if I am not loving others as I ought, then I do not know God's love as I should. And so John concludes his argument in verse 21 by reminding us that this command is from Jesus himself. And it's to love him by loving his people. Verse 21, John writes, And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John immediately goes, look, this is not my teaching. This is the teaching of Jesus. It has come from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus equates that loving God is by loving others. Jesus would say it this way. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus spoke those words in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. So what Jesus gives us, church, is he gives us a command it's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not a good idea that we might want to consider. It says, if you truly love God, then you'll truly love his people. Love for God and love for his people are two sides of the same coin. They are bookends of the same command. If you say you love God and hate the church, John says that you're a liar. The truth is not in you. So failure to love the bride is a great offense to the bridegroom. And as I say that, I realize that many of us are here gathered together in one place, and yet there's a camera staring at me in the back of the room. And there is a live stream now going home into homes wherever they are. You cannot love God's people if you are not with God's people. And so those that would view from home, look, live stream is meant for shut-ins. It's meant for those who are unable to get here. So thank you, everybody, for being here. But for those that are at home, you cannot obey the commands of Christ. You cannot stir up love and good works with one another unless you are with God's people. You can't encourage one another and exhort one another. You can't use your gifts to serve the body to benefit one another unless you are here with God's people. John argues, how can you love God you do not see if you do not love God's people who you do see? This is evidence of coming together, of demonstrating God's love one to another. You can't do that if you stay home. People say, what's the big deal about church attendance? Well, why do I have to be with God's people? First and foremost, because God commanded it. And when we don't, we're being disobedient. But what comes out of it is the true testimony that ends up giving us confidence for the day of judgment, that we see God's love flowing through us one to another. That's why we grieve with one another grieves. That's why we rejoice when someone else rejoices because the demonstration of the love of God. And so, 
Those of you at home, if you are physically able to be here, I encourage you next week to be here with us. And if you are looking in from somewhere else, you're like, well, I'm not near your church, then go to your local church and be with God's people and demonstrate love for God's people. As we conclude this morning, let me remind you about what Jesus says about those who are forgiven much. You all know it, right? Those who are forgiven much will love much. It says that in Luke 7, 47. Beloved, we have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven of every idolatrous and rebellious act against a holy God. And we have been loved much. And therefore, the command is that we would love much. Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon can, said it this way. Mighty deeps of his immeasurable love, high up on the eternal hills, flow down into the inmost recesses of our empty hearts. When afterward a fountain of love is seen springing up out of them, the secret of its action is to be traced to that great reservoir away up on the everlasting hills, end quote. He goes on and comments and says, if you do not live in love, you do not live in God, end quote. Spurgeon. As we've seen this morning, there is a direct correlation between the two. Knowing God is knowing his love. Abiding in God means his love is abiding in us, and now it's evidenced from one another. John is writing that you might have assurance of salvation. And he argues that the genuineness of your salvation is evidenced by your love one for another. And so before we close, you must ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself this, do I have confidence for the day of judgment? Secondly, ask yourself this, do I experience the grace of God working through me in the way that I love others? Now let me clarify others. Others who are difficult. Others that I don't agree with. Others who hurt me. You know, anyone can love those who love them. Think of your own sin and rebellion towards God. And in light of that, think of God's demonstration of love towards you, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Only God can love like this. So if you sit there this morning and say, but I'm only human, that's partly correct. You are only human, but if you are in Christ, you also have the spirit of God within you. And so if only God can love like this, and now God abides in you, guess who else can love like this? You can. Though you may not feel like it. You know, we don't always feel like being obedient. We could pull some of our kids in here today. Do you always feel like obeying your parents? And they might say, no. But out of fear, respect, and love for their parents, they do what they've asked. In the same way that we respond to our God. And our Jesus has commanded us to love his people. And as we do, we get the blessing of the assurance that there is no fear of the judgment of God that is coming.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that while we were still sinners, that you sent Christ to die for us. We thank you that you have given us life in Jesus. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for not demonstrating your love as we ought. We know that it is not because we were unable, but because we chose not to. Father, forgive us for grieving your spirit. Let us not leave this place to continue to walk defiantly. Strengthen us, O God, by your spirit. Grant us the conviction to go and to love those whom we have not shown your love to. May we do it as we leave this place. God, we know that you are glorified when we walk in this manner. We thank you that it is when we see your abiding love flowing through us that we have assurance that we are yours. Thank you, O oh God, for first loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.